This is an ABC podcast. So I had a power tripping boss um, who used to make me print out emails before I'd send them so that he could find errors in them. But the trouble was, well, it, my grammar was actually better than his. So I used to deliberately add in a few errors just so that he'd have something to find and I could get on with my day. <laughs> That's Laura. She's a former analyst turned entrepreneur. I think power is kind of the the flip side of leadership. I think when you see great leaders, they they wield power very lightly. Whereas I think when you have people who have perhaps have been promoted too fast or are in a position and they have their own issues, that seems to manifest itself as power and, and this strength that is not necessarily a good connotation. Hello. I'm Lisa Leong, bringing you part two of our series about power at work. Since we tackled the subject in February this year, gender politics has dominated the news, whether it's Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins speaking out, or via documentaries like Misrepresented or Strong Female Lead, which looks back at the Gillard years. Clearly, these stories have hit a nerve. So today on This Working Life, let's revisit women sharing their stories about the good, the bad and the downright ugly of power in the workplace. Oh, where to start? There are so many of them. (laughs) That's Juliet Burke, now an adjunct professor at UNSW Business School. Juliet has more than 30 years executive experience as a lawyer, entrepreneur and workplace consultant. But I might dig back um, a few years when I was a lawyer. There were a couple then which I suppose really logged in my mind. They're quite memorable. One was when um, I used to be a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor, and I was prosecuting a case against a particular guy. And I walked out of court and all of the people were sort of lined up waiting for their cases to be heard. And I overheard the solicitor who was acting for the defendant say to his client, don't worry about your case. I've just heard the prosecutor's a woman. And it was memorable to me at the time because I was confused by it. And I thought, well, why would that make a difference? What, what do you? And so obviously I realized after a while, he thought there was an advantage in me being female. Well, of course, you know, I did the very best I could and um, it didn't go well for his client. But, but the thing was, it was, um, it was a really, really interesting discussion about power because it was implicit in that conversation that gender was part of power. And I didn't hear his client saying anything to the contrary either. So it was obviously something that was a sort of shared understanding. So I think that was my first real awakening around, oh, different power expectations. And there was another when I was a lawyer as well. And I had been prosecuting a case in court and there was a, a, a man who was appearing again on the other side. And he didn't like something that I said, which is normal. But then when we got out of court, we were actually up at Darlinghurst Court, which I don't know if you know those, but they're very old courts and they have a balcony sort of running around them. And it's quite dark and quite isolated. Well, anyway, he pushed me up against the wall with his hand against my chest and said to me, if you ever say anything like that again, and then just left it there. So that was sort of a very different type of power. That was, well, that physical, was physical power. Yeah, I'm not a big woman. And um, it, it was very interesting because in some ways it, it started to turn me away from being a lawyer. Uh, looking back now, would you have done anything differently, do you think? 
It's what a great question. I don't know because it happens so fast when, and you, you're not really prepared for it. I don't know if I would have. I don't know what I could do in that circumstance, but I think what I would do is if I saw that happen to someone else, I would be much more likely to step in. I think I would use my my voice to strengthen someone else who had been rendered a little bit powerless. Can you tell us about your idea of power to rather than power over? Examples of power over is where you're undermining someone or you're lording it over them. I mean, they're diminished by that experience of power, where as power too, it is to achieve something good. I mean, that's power to make a difference, I think. Um, this is a gross generalization. However, research does show that men are more likely to want power over and, and probably that's the way they've been socialized to sort of be the top dog, whereas women as a tendency are more likely to want power to, power to influence something for good. And I think that's, that's interesting as well because women often shy away from wanting to be seen as powerful. It's not stereotypically, um, you know, heading in the right direction for a powerful woman. Sort of you've got this image of shoulder pads and, you know, pull back hair and stilettos, that kind of idea. But I think power does resonate for women if it is the power to do something good for their families, for their community, for their workplace, for their colleagues. It's a very different framing than power lording it over someone else. And I think, I mean, I, I did hear that Obama had this strategy where he encouraged the people in his group to sort of shine a light, as he called it, on someone else. And that is giving your voice to other people's voice. And there there's a positive story that I've got there. The, the CEO of Deloitte, Cindy Hook, a few years ago, obviously had a big voice in the community and the marriage equality debate was going on at the time, which at that stage was one that necessarily wasn't going to, you know, result in marriage equality. And she used her voice to galvanise the other partners in the group and to put into the public arena that she was supportive of marriage equality. In that stage, it was quite brave to do that. No one else was really doing that. That was the time that Dutton was asking people to go back to their knitting and she didn't. So she used her power for good. And I think when that happens as well, we want to jump onto that. We want to give our voice to someone else who is using their power for good. Juliet Burke, spotlighting sounds like a great idea to ensure that good work doesn't go unnoticed. But interestingly, sometimes when the spotlight is trained on successful women leaders, it can sometimes backfire. Here is Sex Discrimination Commissioner at the Australian Human Rights Commission, Kate Jenkins. Men in particular have said to me, why won't women stand up? But when I have looked uh, quite deeply at what I've called women in the spotlight, I've spoken to senior women and said, what is that experience like? And those women have pretty consistently said, look, I'm happy to do it if it will help the cause. Uh, but generally speaking, when I'm put in the spotlight, it never goes well for me. Why? What so happens? What, what they say is, first and foremost, if you're already in the minority, you're already noted for being a woman. But once you get sort of really highlighted, your male peers become resentful. 
it also, it might amplify your successes, but it also amplifies your mistakes. And a lot of senior women we see really being quite, and in the media, there's been some uh, high profile examples of female chairs where the commentary is, well, this shows that women can't do the roles. If a man fails, it's not quite as high a stakes. And the other place that there can be downsides is in social media and media more broadly. So there's a lot of high profile people, particularly female politicians, female athletes, women in the media who find that they get a whole lot more online trolling mm-hmm. um, and abuse at sexist and sexual in nature. And the the young Victorian of the year for this year is Taylor Harris. And it's great credit to her that she is there. And one of the reasons is is that she called out that online trolling when a really great photo of her kicking a football was posted and uh, when it was posted, there was a whole lot of abuse. So when women get into those roles, it's still high risk. But the interesting thing is, I think often women who are in senior roles, we shouldn't expect them to just be speaking on behalf of women, but quite often they are truly exceptional. So there's this there's this story of um, this idea of the elephant and the mouse, the idea that in any power structure across the world, you have a situation of the elephant and the mouse, which is really the dominant group and the non-dominant group. Hang and on, the is the dominant group the elephant or the, the mouse? The dominant group is the elephant. <laughs> okay. So, if you have an elephant and a mouse together, what does the elephant need to know about the mouse? Pretty much nothing. They can just go about their life. The mouse isn't going to bother them. They don't have to have any understanding. But for the mouse living with that elephant, what do they need to know? They need to know everything. They need to know the moods. They need to know what they're going to like, dislike, where they're going to move, how they're going to move, how to keep out of the way and how to live around this elephant. And so the idea in a lot of Western cultures is the dominant group is white men and the mouse is women and minorities. And the reality is I've seen over my career, women who uh, succeed not only have to be really good at their role, but they also have to know how to adapt to the particular climate and circumstances that mean that they would advance and that they don't get themselves in trouble. So when women are promoted, they often recount that they feel like they have to be twice as good as the men to get promoted. And even then, there's a suggestion that they were promoted because they were women, which is pretty insulting to these high, you know, high achieving women. And once she became one of those high-achieving women and had risen to the executive level, even then, Juliet Burke still felt the impact of what she saw as gender power plays. I can think of a couple of examples. One, when I was presenting on a panel of executives and we were presenting to a whole group of board members, uh, let's say there would have been about 100 people in the audience, and I had made a particular comment and then the person next to me, just happened to be a guy, but um, person next to me made a comment and then a person next to him made a comment, also a guy. And then that last person who spoke attributed my insight to someone else 
the, the person who had just spoken. And so it was sort of a diminution of power in a way. He had appropriated my insights and so a sort of reduction in the presence that I had. And I suppose what was interesting about that was that it happened in public. It happens in the blink of an eye. You realize that someone has falsely attributed an idea, but you can't do anything about it. Um, you can't stamp your foot. That would be childish. You can't halt the conversation to say, hang on a second, that was my idea. Um, but no one else said anything. So it was very clear, but you know, no one in the audience said anything. No one came back to it. The person who had been given credit for my idea didn't say, no, 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 that was actually Juliet's idea. So there was this sort of, I don't know, swirling morass going around me in which I was sort of powerless to do anything about that false attribution. Oh, shit. Um, yeah, they just put on the freaking sprinklers. <laughs> I just got soaked. <laughs> I'll just move over here and hopefully I'll just... That was so fun. Oh, God, there, there's a lizard sitting right here. Um, yeah, okay, we're all good. I can do this right here. <laughs> That's Zoe Ralph in a park in downtown Canberra where we interrupted her facilitating a leadership workshop. And Zoe has seen many lizards in her time. And no, that's not a euphemism. She spent many years working for Outward Bound and is now a leadership expert. Her book, People Stuff, looks into the complex dynamics of humans at work, and that includes power. It's such a fascinating topic. And one of the things I've noticed with the male and female leaders is their difference of opinion about do they have it or not. And I find that mm -hmm. women leaders don't think they have much power. So they tend to be a bit more consultative in their approach to leadership. The men, I find, if they are being consultative, are doing it very intentionally, as, as opposed to the women who do it by default. So I find that women leaders often want to be influencers instead of dominators, if you like. <laughs> Not sure that's the best use of words. So they have a different use of power, different approach to it than men more broadly. And why do you think that is? I don't think there's enough critical mass of women in very visible leadership roles to help us feel more natural with, with women in power positions. And even though they're different, would you say that one is better than the other or how do you look at power? I would definitely not say there's one better than the other in terms of male approach or female approach. Uh, what I would say is that there's good power and bad power, whether it's used by men or by women. And bad power is about manipulating others. It's about domineering and dominating others. It's about subjugating other people to your will. And that's sort of the bad use of power. And I think that's why power gets a bad rap. I think good power is when we show up feeling strong in ourselves, confident in ourselves, and we are focused on bringing people along for a journey with us in pursuit of a better future. So the power that we exercise in terms of our confidence and our conviction is good power. And especially if we want to bring that out in others, if we focus as leaders on elevating people's abilities and their confidence and conviction, then we're doing uh, a good service and that's a good use of power. And how, did, how can we ensure that we stay on the side of the good power rather than the bad power? 
(laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Because power is, it's a trap. And there's a lot of research supporting that. It's such an energizing thing to be granted power, uh, whether it's through a positional authority or through deference or through status. And it feels amazing to be given that kind of stature by others. And this is one of the key challenge that we face is that we start to buy into people's stories about ourselves. We can believe our own uh, bullcrap, if you like. And that is a definite hazard. And this is where we see the rise of hubris. And I love the ancient Romans who knew about this way back when. And they used to have a practice, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but it's definitely in the lore, that generals, when they were returning to Rome on the back of a chariot, coming into Rome for their tribute, would have a slave perched on the back of their chariot, whispering in their ear, going, <laughs> remember, you are just mortal. And it was to guard against that that whole sense of hubris. In terms of how we can guard against it, there's three things. There's humility. And Aristotle and many other leading lights have said in different versions of this that if I know anything, I know nothing. Mm. <laughs> and this idea that we can still come to the table with a beginner's mind is super important. Curiosity is the next piece and it sort of feeds into the humility piece. If we believe there's always more to learn and we stay curious, then that guards against a little bit of one of the traps of power, the hubris piece. And the third piece is to care. So when we have a focus on others instead of ourselves, then we are probably going to put a little bit of insulation against um, the abuses of power around us. And Zoe, is there a gender difference with hubris? Hmm. Uh, No, I don't think so. I think it's a common trap between men and women. We can see women rise and be arrogant. We can see men Mm -hmm. rise and be arrogant. I think in terms of my own personal experience with that, what I've seen happen sometimes, only twice with female leaders who are leading me, is status became incredibly important. And as a younger woman wanting to make her mark and having a lot to say, (laughs) I have a lot of opinions, Mm -hmm wasn't necessarily embraced and supported by those female leaders around me. And I got a sense they wanted to make sure I got put in my place. And I experienced a little bit of belittling, a little bit of being laughed at or teased or another way sort of put down so that I would uh, pay deference to my elders. That's what it felt like. And um, it wasn't a great feeling. And then I, on reflection a few years later going, well, did I give them enough respect? You know, it's a two-way street. And Zoe, what else is important to understand about power in your experience? It's also a really critically important um, energy. And that's what power is, really. It's energy. It's the use of energy. You can use it and wield it like a sword, or you can use it and wield it like a torch. You can bring the light or you can cut people down. Um, Now, what do leaders need to understand about how to wield power? We need to do it ethically. And I think we need to be mindful of where we are focused are we focused on ourselves? Or are we focused on others? Are we letting our own accolades uh, detract us from our purpose? And are we getting too sucked into that? Um, they say that it's lonely at the top and it's also very quiet. And what that means is that because we have a positional authority, people are more reluctant to give us feedback, to tell us the truth because their job's at stake. And so we need as leaders to constantly seek out feedback, to constantly look for more information and to make ourselves more accessible so that people can feel more confident to share their point of view. Leadership expert and trainer Zoe Routh. And where there's power, there's potential for its abuse. 
Kate Jenkins oversaw the recent national inquiry into sexual harassment in the workplace. We looked in relation to sexual harassment of what it was the key driver and we found that the key driver was power disparity and not sex. And the biggest power disparity that still exists in our workplaces is gender inequality. So that's one of the biggest drivers of sexual harassment. And in relation to power disparity, how does that play out? Yeah, in practice, what we heard is the people who are more likely to experience sexual harassment are the people who are in lower positions or less powerful positions. Young people, unsurprisingly, women who were often more impacted, LGBTI community, people with disabilities, people in insecure work. So, what we found was they were more likely to experience sexual harassment, but also they weren't in a position to raise it. So, even though senior people would say, you know, their solutions were, well, I'm really encouraging people to come forward. By the nature of power, junior people don't feel confident to come forward. They're worried about risking their jobs, their reputations, you know, that their working relationships will be affected, that they'll miss out on promotions. So, the solution that's often provided by employers is, well, more people need to complain mm. or, or my favourite, bystander training, as if, you know, peers can help each other out, just really fails to understand that the key driver is power. And so, to change it, we really need those people in power to understand. And what we hear consistently is that the people who feel safest and most confident to do their work really well are ones who have trust in their bosses and who feel like they've got an open and um, trusted relationship with that person. But often bosses really only engage when there's a problem Mm. And really fail, you know, we'll often say, well, there isn't a problem because no one's complained. Not remembering that actually when you're junior or when you're not in the dominant position, you can't complain, you won't complain, and there's good reasons for that. And before we go, final words from our four wise women today. Um, I think I would emphasise that power is there to be used to create great things around you and don't be afraid of the personal power that you have, not positional power. You know, that's when you're a junior lawyer or a junior person in an organisation, you think you have no positional power, therefore you can't do anything. But you do, you have a lot of personal power. You can influence people with your words and your values and um, that makes a huge difference. So I would say lean into your personal power way before you have positional power. Power is energy. And when we learn how to manage ourselves best, then we have a better chance of bringing good power and good energy to the table. And to remember always to keep our eye on who we're serving. I think it would be good for both men and women to understand that the system currently isn't equal for everyone and that there are inbuilt barriers, both attitudinal and systemic. So it would be good for both women and men to understand how the system does favour um, 
men, it favours people who are, you know, able to work full time, who don't have caring responsibilities. And to understand that we can make some small changes or some large ones to make that pathway easier through so that really it is true merit that we really do get a gender balance but of all the full talents in our community. I think one of the biggest differences I've seen is the generational shift of how especially women of a younger generation are coming through and working out what is women's leadership because I think there was this kind of one style of leadership that was very masculine, you kind of associate it with the Wall Street 80s type thing. And women had to be like that to get on. And now we're seeing these other styles of leadership. So Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand and the fact that you can be a different type of leader. So rather than the gender differences, I think we're seeing generational differences more so. And I think it is to embrace and create those moments where you have power to make a difference don't wait for someone else to do it you know there may be no one else who's going to do it and I think about or throughout my career 30 years now all of those moments where I've leaned into hey I can make a difference here and I have I have made a difference to things multiple times, not just individually. Of course, it's always about getting a team around you, but galvanizing a team of small voices to create a strengthened voice absolutely has an impact. And I, I'm glad that I've done those things and I wish I'd done more of them. Juliette Burke adjunct professor at UNSW Business School. And thanks also to entrepreneur Laura. Kate Jenkins, Sex Discrimination Commissioner at the Australian Human Rights Commission, and a pretty wet Zoe Ralph, leadership expert and author. And if you missed part one of this series with the inimitable Dacca Keltner, who shared his research about why power can corrupt and why it's so damn hard to give it up once you have it, search for This Working Life in any free podcast app. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle. And any feedback, good or bad, about our show, you can email her at thisworkinglife at abc.net.au. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.